Beverly was called out to patients, and I happened to be within claim. The man would make me most unhappy by describing in a low, even voice the procession that was always passing at the bottom of his bed. He had a sick man's command of the language. When he recovered, I suggested that he should write out the whole affair from beginning to end, knowing that ink might assist him to ease his mind. When little boys have learned a new bad word, they are never happy till they have chalked it up on a door, and this also is literature. He was in a high fever while he was writing, and the blood and thunder magazine diction he adopted did not calm him. Two months afterwards, he was reported fit for duty, but in spite of the fact that he was urgently needed to help an undermanned commission stagger through a deficit, he preferred to die, vowing to the last that he was hag-ridden. I got his manuscript before he died, and this is his version of the affair, dated 1885. My doctor tells me that I need rest and a change of air. It is not improbable that I shall get both ere long, rest that neither the red-coated messenger nor the midday gun can break, and a change of air far beyond that which any homeward-bound steamer can give me. In the meantime, I am resolved to stay where I am, and in flat defiance of my doctor's orders, to take all the world into my confidence. You shall learn for yourselves the precise nature of my malady, and shall too judge for yourselves whether any man born of woman on this weary earth was ever so tormented as I. Speaking now as a condemned criminal might speak, ere the drop-bolts are drawn, my story, wild and hideously improbable as it may appear, demands at least attention. That it will ever receive credence, I utterly disbelieve. Two months ago, I should have scouted as mad or drunk the man who had dared tell me the like. Two months ago, I was the happiest man in India. Today, from Peshawar to the sea, there is no one more wretched. My doctor and I are the only two who know this. His explanation is that my brain, digestion and eyesight are all slightly affected giving rise to my frequent and persistent delusions. Delusions, indeed. I call him a fool. But he attends me still with the same unwearied smile, the same bland professional manner, the same neatly trimmed red whiskers, till I begin to suspect that I am an ungrateful, evil-tempered invalid. But you shall judge for yourselves. Three years ago it was my fortune my great misfortune, to sail from Gravesend to Bombay on return from long leave with one Agnes Keith Wessington, wife of an officer on the Bombay side. It does not in the least concern you to know what manner of woman she was. Be content with the knowledge that ere the voyage had ended, both she and I were desperately and unreasoningly in love with each other. Heaven knows that I can make the admission now without one particle of vanity. In manners of this sort, there is always one who gives and another who accepts. From the first day of our ill-omened attachment, I was conscious that Agnes's passion was a stronger, a more dominant, and, if I may use the expression, a purer sentiment than mine. Whether she recognised the fact then, I do not know. Afterwards, it was bitterly plain to both of us. Arrived at Bombay in the spring of the year, we went our respective ways to meet no more for the next three or four months, when my leave and her love 
took us both to Simla. There we spent the season together, and there my fire of straw burned itself out to a pitiful end with the closing year. I attempt no excuse. I make no apology. Mrs. Wessington had given up much for my sake and was prepared to give up all. From my own lips, in August 1882, she learned that I was sick of her presence, tired of her company, and weary of the sound of her voice. Ninety-nine women out of a hundred would have wearied of me as I wearied of them. Seventy-five of that number would have promptly avenged themselves by active and obtrusive flirtation with other men. Mrs. Wessington was the hundredth. On her, neither my openly expressed aversion, nor the cutting brutalities with which I garnished our interviews, had the least effect. Jack, darling, was her one eternal cuckoo cry. I'm sure it